But what happened is my joints, my sacroiliac joints climbing the hills started going in and out and in and out. They would grind, they would pop. At first it was just noisy and then it became excruciatingly painful. They sent me to an orthopedist who had me like bend over. I could bend over fine. It was getting back up again that was difficult. And since I could bend over, he was like, there's nothing wrong with you. And that was the first time that I ever felt like totally disbelieved by a doctor. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews podcast. When you've been sick since a child, as Jean McArdle has been, you gain a preternatural insight into the world of medicine and medical care. And if you have a disease unknown or misunderstood by medicine, you get the advantage of being an outsider while inside the system. Of course, this cuts both ways. Having a medically marginalized disease essentially guarantees medical harm, neglect, gaslighting, and distrust of doctors. In this interview with Jean McArdle, she recounts the myriad ways physicians have gaslighted her over the years. At times, this ubiquitous gaslighting from authority figures undermined Jean's own sense of her body and reality. Even when Jean used her master's research skills to track and plot the objective biological changes in her body, the evidence was dismissed by doctors. When Jean reported bodily pain, doctors would ignore or minimize it. It was not until Jean got in front of a doctor that specialized in her symptoms that the gaslighting stopped and the appropriate testing and treatment began. But as Jean points out, if the doctor can't figure out the problem, the patient becomes the problem. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Jean and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Jean's experiences with the healthcare system. Awesome. Thanks, Jean. So, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? I grew up in um, Queens, uh, outside of Manhattan, and then we moved to Long Island, um, Massapequa. I, you know, I grew up in a very, very Catholic environment until I was seven, and we moved out to Long Island, where it was a little bit more secular. I mean, we I was right down the block from the church. Everybody stopped and said the Angelus, which is a prayer that like only old Irish people know. But that's, it was almost like old world. So it was a little bit of a culture shock to move to Long Island. I was never healthy. 
so um, I was the kid who, you know, missed kindergarten because I had so many um, tonsillitis cases. And finally, they got my tonsils out. I was severely anemic. Uh, just, you know, one thing after another. I developed this, this way of coping, which I would call push crash. So I had a lot of drive. I wanted to play with my friends. I wanted to do stuff. So I would do it until I was completely flat out exhausted. I'd recover. And then I'd start the process again. Like whenever I had a good segment of time, it was like I had to use that. That was like a style of coping that I carried over to high school when I developed terrible allergies and was like on double doses of Benadryl, which if you can imagine being on double doses of Benadryl, I used to put my head down and go to sleep in some of my classes. And you know, I still did okay. And then I went to college uh, at Siena, uh, which is a little Franciscan college in um, Albany. The allergies weren't so bad there, so I could like break up, stop taking double doses of Benadryl, maybe only single doses. <laughs> so I did, you know, I did well in college and I met my husband. I got a job at GE as a uh, technical writer. We got married maybe a year after I got out of college. GE in the time of um, Neutron Jack was not really a pleasant place to work, Jack Welch. Jack Welch was one of the first guys who was um, into cutting all his employees and making them work as hard as humanly possible. Uh, we used to, they used to record to some of the, refer to some of the uh, employees as tissue people, use them up and throw them out. So, <laughs> so you take a person who's used to pushing and crashing and you know, you put them in that kind of environment. It was, it was, um, it wasn't a good environment for me. So I... Uh, so Jean, uh, can we unpack the push and crash cycle? How long would that cycle last and what did the crashes feel like, look like? Um, well, when I was in college, it was really great because I could sort of just not do too much the first month and then work really hard for the next, you know, four or five or six weeks and then go home and you know, sleep it off. I was never somebody who could do that, you know, eight to five, eight to five, eight to five, because I never knew when I was going to be well. For me, it was, it was much more efficient to work when I felt well. And then um, the crash part. So what, what does that I look sleep, like, feel like? Just sleep, <laughs> just sleep till I recovered. I, I have a very vivid memory of being in high school I did, just didn't have as much energy as other people did. So I would go to the prom and we'd stay up till two o'clock in the morning as kids do or, or later. And then the next day they'd all go to a um, amusement park in New Jersey. But by the time I got to bed, then I was out, you know, so there'd be kids in my living room going, come down, come down, we're going to the, to the amusement park. And I'd be like, go without me. And, and my parents would be like, but your friends are going to the amusement park. Don't you want to go? And be like, I can't get out of bed, you know? So like, have a good time, have fun, and I'll see you on Monday. <laughs> so. so how did your parents respond to your cycles of push and crashes? Did they understand? My dad was going, um, working full time, going to night school, raising three kids. So I think that I probably uh, learned it from him because he would, he would just work, 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 and then crash on the couch. So, you, you know, I probably learned from him that, well, this is the way to get things done. You just, you just work until you collapse and then you, then you recharge your battery and you go out and you do it again. <laughs> so I would not say it's, it's not really productive, but it's how I got through grad school. Like I never would have got through grad school had I not been able to push myself that hard. And how did your body react to physical exertion? Oh, well, by the time when I first was working at GE, maybe about a year in, 10 months in, I got this terrible virus and that virus put me 
on my back for probably three weeks. I mean, like, like the phone rang and I couldn't pick up the phone. That's how, that's how bad it was. I was putting my husband through law school. So the idea of like, not, but the idea of having this great job and, and not being able to go to it was like anathema. So the idea that the phone could be ringing and I didn't have the energy to pick it up was, was just, it was not something I could really comprehend, but it was really where I was. And the only reason that I didn't like starve to death is that my roommates brought, my roommate brought up some soup from the lady downstairs who somehow understood that I was really sick. And I mean, it was one of these things where I really couldn't move. I went to doctor after doctor and they were like, oh, well, you know, you had a virus. It was like a viral syndrome. And I never really like got a hundred percent back on my feet after that. So yeah, that's how, that's how my body would react. It would, uh, uh, oh, and after that I, I developed dysautonomia where I would, uh, I climb stairs or hills or whatever, then my heart would start to beat really, really fast. I didn't recognize that as my heart beating really fast until I was uh, getting a physical before I went to grad school. And the doctor said, you're laying on this table and your heart's going 120 beats a minute. <laughs> and I was like, is that what that funny feeling is? And um, then I realized that, you know, like if I climbed a hill or I climbed stairs, it went even faster. If something happened like the phone rang, it went faster. Anytime you, I would get like a little tiny burst of adrenaline, my body would overreact to that in like a, a huge, huge way. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of the state I was in when I went to grad school. I was 27 at the time and I uh, went to Cornell. I got this great deal where they, they paid me to go and they gave me um, a teaching assistantship. And I thought it was the greatest thing ever. I had no idea what I was taking on. And I had no idea how ill-equipped my body was to handle that level of physical exertion. I don't know if you know anything about Cornell, but it is huge hills. So within a week, I, my heart would go crazy, but I'd been told that wasn't an, that wasn't a big problem. It was like uncomfortable and it made me breathless, but it was like, all right, whatever. But what happened is my joints, my sacroiliac joints climbing the hills started going in and out and in and out. They would grind, they would pop. At first it was just noisy and then it became excruciatingly painful. And that was the first time that I ever felt like totally disbelieved by a doctor. The people at the health center were like, oh, clearly there's something wrong with you. And they, could, they did some tests and they could figure it out that there was something wrong. They sent me to an orthopedist who had me like bend over. I could bend over fine. It was getting back up again that was difficult. And since I could bend over, he was like, there's nothing wrong with you. And I was like, but my, these joints in my back are, are grinding and popping. I can hear them, I can feel them. And he just looked me in the eyes and said, those joints are fused in adults. <laughs> I was like, but mine aren't. You know, like I can feel them move. And he was like, oh no, no, those are fused in adults. I mean, it like messed with my sense of reality. This guy is telling me 100% these joints are fused. And I am like 100% they don't feel fused to me. Um, and they're causing me a lot of pain. I have never really recovered from that injury because what I did was I just kept doing what I needed to do. You know, I just kept climbing the hills. Uh, eventually I got a parking pass from Cornell's health center because they, they did understand that something was going on, but this was pre-ADA. So I would get parking spaces that were very far away from the classes that I had to attend, the classes that I had to um, you know, be an assistant in, the labs that I had to run. So I kept re-injuring myself. And so when I went home, I finished my coursework, I went home and I slept so hard that you could put one of those Ma Bell phones next to my head 
and people could call me on one of those old phones that I have no idea what the decibel is, but you could hear it above a vacuum cleaner. You know, you can hear it above anything. That would be right next to my head and I wouldn't wake up. I was just so tired. So I slept for like, uh, oh, good six months. <laughs> you know, like, like I'd get up and I'd, I'd cook dinner and then, you know, I'd do a little shopping or whatever, but I really didn't, I really didn't do too much. And then I started to feel better. Um, and by that time I was 30, we decided, well, you know, I'm 30, my biological click is, clock is ticking. We decided to have a baby and I felt great for the first six months and I worked on my thesis and, and then I got toxemia. Uh, toxemia is um, another word for it's preeclampsia. It's high blood pressure in pregnancy but it's more than high blood pressure. It can, it, it also affects your organs. In really bad cases, you can have seizures. But the doctors didn't recognize that I had this. I started to swell, my blood pressure started to go up, and I was in a practice where there were several doctors, and I'd say, look at my swollen ankles, look at my swollen hands, and you know, my blood pressure is going up, and they'd put me in a quiet room and turn out all the lights and, you know, and they'd come back and it would be pretty much normal. So they'd say, you're fine. And I'd be like, but I don't spend my life in a quiet room with the lights off, with a blanket over my shoulders, you know, like I'm doing things. And when I do things, my blood pressure really goes up. And they, they didn't want to hear that. Finally, I was swelling and swelling probably about a month before the baby was officially due. I went in because my, I felt my blood pressure was very high and the doctor said, oh my God, like I've seen people die of this. So she put me in the hospital, they delivered the baby. Turns out I was extremely anemic, which is why I kept complaining about being tired. And they kept me in the hospital for a week. But here was my, my frustration where I knew something was wrong. And, you know, they didn't... <laughs> They weren't catching on. And for the first time in my life, because I was pregnant and I didn't have any schedules to keep or whatever, it was the first time in my life I wasn't doing that push crash thing. I was just doing the, I was just living life on my own terms, you know, in terms of getting up, working as I could, making dinner, doing, doing whatever it was that I had to do, but not in that kind of like, I have a deadline to meet. So anyway, they kept me in the hospital for a week. I was so wiped out from the pregnancy, from the delivery, all my vitals were like unstable and everything. So they told me that um, they wouldn't discharge me unless I had six weeks of round the clock help. You know, like they said, you need six weeks of somebody taking care of you. And then you need somebody else to take care of the baby. <laughs> so, Luckily, um, my mother happened to be there when the baby was delivered, which was like just fortuitous because baby was a month early. They were just coming up to visit. She got scared, I think, during the, um, the delivery because she could see people running back and forth. And um, she heard them talking about me. So she was like, all right, I'm, I'm staying for three weeks. My sister came for two weeks and then my husband stayed home for a week. But during that time, I would fall asleep with food in my mouth. I mean, that's like, I would fall asleep mid-chew. I was so tired. Anyway, so, you know, finally I'm with the baby and slowly, slowly, slowly we're getting better. Um, I, I would dress him to go out for a little walk and then I'd have to lay on the couch for 20 minutes because I was so tired and then I'd get up and you know we'd walk to the mailbox <laughs> and we turn around and we walk back because that's as far as I could make it and then maybe another couple of days I could I could walk to the next house and then we you know I mean it was like this very step by step by step getting better and then it took me another couple of years to finish my thesis but I did finish the thesis I haven't worked since I was 27 you know, I was in grad school after I was 27, but I haven't actually worked um, because 
I don't believe that I could maintain that schedule that's required. If I could work 10 hours a week, I could probably do that. But I don't have the stamina that a normal person has. The only way that I can get that stamina is by overdoing it and then collapsing. And yeah, what um, employer wants you for two days and then you're too sick to work for three days. Right. Right. And, you know, as I've gotten older, that's gotten worse because then I got the Graves disease, which is hyperthyroidism. And every hit that I take physically sets me back further. I live a very, you know, privileged life. I am supported by my husband. I have everything that I need. I can live what I consider to be a productive life, a life where I do make some contributions to society and to other people, but I have to live my, my schedule and what I am able to, to give doesn't match with what society requires of people. Because of the fact that I am supported, I can have this kind of life and I can feel almost normal. For instance, I have a service dog. I went, I went to uh, team training, which is um, two weeks of, let's say eight to three. You're in classes or you're interacting with people by day nine or 10. I have a power chair because I can't walk very far and it's also for energy conservation. I was literally driving that chair into walls. I only have so much in me. And I've learned that the push crash is not a really good way to deal with things. It was just, it was a way to get through ch childhood and high, and high school and college and, and grad school, but it was not sustainable for the long term. There you are, a, a new mom, and that just takes, you know, <laughs> endless energy. Um, knowing that you're very limited in your, your body's ability to do stuff and you're going to have to manage that to be able to manage right. motherhood. So you weren't able to rejoin the workforce for all of those years, but where was the diagnosis? There was no diagnosis. So, you know, it was like, well, you had toxemia, but what do you have now? It is a very, very difficult way to live because you know it's not working. You know, you know that, but you have no, no reason. And our society requires a reason. I would go to doctors, I'd get blown off. Finally, uh, they gave me some um, uh, metoprolol for the crazy heart rate when my son was about two. So that'd be 1993 or so. A Couple of years after that, my heart started going insane and I didn't know what was going on. And so I finally, when the rhythm, very, very unusual rhythm started and it kept going overnight, I went to my doctor and he's like, oh, you're in atrial fibrillation. So I was like, okay, what's atrial fibrillation? And it's when the top chambers, your atrium quivers and it doesn't beat efficiently. And if you have, if the ventricles respond quickly, you will have a rapid ventricular response. And so my heart rate was, you know, over 200. It was, it was really kind of nuts. So we went to uh, the ER and they did a cardio version, which is they stop your heart. It sometimes will start beating properly again. So they did that and it started beating properly again. And I was like, well, what's causing this? Oh, we don't know. So I was in for like three times. And finally, somebody discovered that I was hyperthyroid. Hyperthyroid. Yes. That means it's producing too much. Too much. So your heart goes too fast. I was starving all the time. Nobody asked me. You know, um, I was not thin, but I had lost weight, despite the fact that I was eating three breakfasts. <laughs> I mean, I was like so hungry all the time. I'm not the type of person who demands anything when I'm in a, in a hospital, but I remember after they fixed my heart, I said, you need to give me something to eat because if you don't give me something to eat, it's going to bop right back. I can feel it. Like I need food. I got treated for the, for the Graves disease, which is autoimmune hyperthyroidism is called Graves disease. And uh, they give you radioactive iodine to, to make your thyroid 
uh, stop working or to destroy it actually. So they destroyed my thyroid, supposedly, but this was in July. Uh, and then in September, I started getting atrial fibrillation again. So again, they kept trying to tell me it was my heart. And I kept saying, well, no, because like I'm, I'm sweating and I'm hungry again. And I feel like I did before. So they tested me and they were like, oh, you know, indeed, yes, you're, you're hyperthyroid again, which isn't supposed to happen. So my doctor, my endocrinologist gave me antithyroid medicine, which blocks thyroid gland production, but she didn't give me anything to replace it. So, so I felt like good for, you know, two weeks or so as the levels coming down to normal, I start feeling pretty good. Then I start feeling pretty bad. I kept going back and I kept going back and I kept saying, you know, I would, because I went to grad school and I had to design an experiment and I had to analyze the stats and I had to do all that. I'm familiar with research and I'm familiar with plotting things on graphs and analyzing them. So this didn't take, this was not rocket science though. This was like, you know, it was above the normal range. Now it's in the normal range. It's going to be out of the normal range very soon. Plus, your body doesn't adjust very well to a plummet in thyroid hormone. If that was to come down really, really gradually, your body would adjust. But over a period of six weeks, mine went from extremely hyperthyroid to extremely hypothyroid. And my autonomic nervous system, heart rate, blood pressure, was going, just going out of control my heart rate would go really high, it would go low, it would go really high, it would go low. My blood pressure would go so high, I would be in a hypertensive crisis, and then it would go low. So of course, they thought I had a pheochromocytoma, which is an adrenal tumor. Instead of saying, wow, your thyroid was really mismanaged, <laughs> they go right for this rare pheochromocyte. So they start working me up for that. Anyway, I, I was to a couple of ERs, uh, because I'd pass out and people would be with me when I'd pass out and they'd call the ambulance. And by the time I'd get there, uh, the ER, the doctor at the ER would say, there's nothing wrong with you. I'd say like, I am severely hypothyroid. You know, like I have the paperwork to show you that I'm hypothyroid. You know, just do the test. No, no, you're not hypothyroid. So finally I called my, my family physician and I said, I'm going to the ER because my doctor had gone off on vacation. The, the endocrinologist who had crashed me went off on vacation. I was like in nowhere land. And I said, I need treatment. You're going to have to advocate for me. And he, he was not happy. He was like, you're, you're under the care of an endocrinologist. And I said, yes, but the endocrinologist is on vacation. I am crashing hard. And so by the time I got there, I was like sliding in the chair. Just, they thought I was having um, like a diabetic coma. They kept saying, are you a diabetic? Are you a diabetic? It's like, no, no, I'm not a diabetic. I just have no thyroid hormone in my system. When the hospital's endocrinologist saw me, saw my levels, saw my test results, he, he was like, I am so sorry this happened to you. This should never, ever have happened to you please don't go back to that woman. <laughs> so anyway, I was in there for maybe four or five days while they straightened it out. This man spent hours by my bedside and he did tests like having me, like a poor man's tilt table test, if you're familiar with that. He had me lay down, sit up, stand, and he would take blood pressure readings, and he said, you know, your autonomic nervous system is, it's, it's out of whack. He called it beta adrenergic hyperactivity syndrome. He was an older man, and I think that's what they called it back then. So he worked with the, with the new cardiologist that they got me to try to get me a better treatment uh, for the dysautonomia. So, you know, things were like, kind of okay. He gave me a replacement synthroid hormone. Uh, I found another endocrinologist, and then I started getting atrial fib again. 
Now, every time I get atrial fib, this endocrinologist would take away some of my Synthroid to the point that I was on half the dose of a normal person. And I kept saying, you know, this is like, I can't, I can't get out of bed. I mean, I really, I couldn't drive my kid anywhere. I had a little terrier who would push me out of bed. It would take him 45 minutes. He would push, push, push till I got to the edge of the bed. That's the only way I got up in the morning was that this, I, I fell asleep hundreds of times before I actually woke up. It was, it was just so terrible. This guy was like, you know, I'm looking at your TSH and your TSH is just fine. So I'm not going to give you any more and you get atrial fib. So I'm going to take it away because clearly you're getting atrial fib because you have too much thyroid hormone. So again, I go to the medical library with what little energy I have <laughs> and I draw my graphs of all the test results and I say, you know, when the TSH goes up, your free T4 should go down and just the opposite, your free T4 is a measure of thyroid hormone. When your free T4 goes up, your TSH is supposed to go down. Be like, mine is not doing that. My TSH is, is moving independently of my free T4 level. This doesn't make any sense. And when you see things that don't make sense, you look for an intervening variable. What do you think an intervening variable could be here? I mean, by this time I've lost him. He's like, not even looking. He won't pay any attention to me. So I say, my T3, which is the active hormone, is sometimes below the normal level. And that's when I can't get out of bed. And sometimes it's way above the normal level. And that's when I get atrial fib. But the medicine that you're giving me doesn't have any T3. So it's coming from somewhere. Where do you think it's coming from? I think my thyroid's grown back. Impossible, couldn't happen. Well, to make a long story short, it did grow back. So I needed a second dose of radioactive iodine. But every time something like this happens to me, my, my total energy level, my bodily health, whatever, it takes a hit. Every time I get pushed back. Oh, so, and you never recover to your previous level of functioning. Exactly, exactly. So I had the second dose of radioactive iodine. Now I don't have any T3 coming in at all. T3 is the active hormone. You cannot use T4 until it is converted to T3. Some people can't convert pretty well. 20% or so of people without thyroid glands cannot convert the synthroid into the hormone T3 that's needed, at least not in sufficient, at a sufficient level to function properly. And I'm one of those people. I had to, I spent another several years at this extremely low level of functioning and then finally found um, someone who could give me armor thyroid which has T3 in it, and it has some of the other missing hormones as well. I don't even take a full dose of armor thyroid. I take some Synthroid, some armor. It's enough to bring me to where I need to be so that I can actually function. And I still, as I said, don't function like, like a person who you know goes to the gym and then works for eight hours and then comes home and cooks dinner and cleans their dishes. No, w what I can do is like one thing a day. If I can do that thing, I'm very happy. I take care of my service dog. I you know do some writing. I cook. I run a support group for people with um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome which is my underlying condition, but I could not do that full-time work. But the, having the armor, having the Synthroid enables me to at least function a little bit. The tragedy to me is that my son was born. I had the toxemia. I was recovering from that. I was diagnosed with classical Ehlers-Danlos right about his, his senior year in high school. So his whole life is his mom being sick, his whole life at home with us. You know, the fact I can't work, haven't been able to work, whatever, 
you know, that's really annoying. But the fact that I couldn't be there more than maybe 50% for my kid, that, that is what really gets to me. I mean, I feel I gave him everything I had. If your mom is sick, you're going to be worried. You know, it's if your mom's in and out of the hospital with atrial fib, you're going to be worried. It's very frustrating to me that, that he paid the price for that. He's fine. He's a software engineer at Google. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's happily married. He's, he's, but I feel like it put unnecessary stress on him. So for folks who don't know what Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is, also EDS is the acronym, what is that? Uh, the type that I have is called classical EDS, and it is a hereditary disorder of connective tissue. My particular type causes very fragile tissue. I am fortunate that I don't have as much pain as people with the more common hypermobile type. I get pain when I, when I injure something. That happens a lot. So, but but I, I always know where it's coming from. I don't have this sort of like generalized pain. I have pain in my sacroiliac joints because they go in and out a lot. So uh, just to circle back, so that when you were in uh, university and you're having trouble walking up the hills and you were feeling your SI joints slipping in and out, they weren't fused. No, no, no. And, and that's something that back when I was a kid, my knees used to go, my kneecaps used to go in and out. And I was diagnosed as being hypermobile, scoliosis. I didn't take gym for a year because they recognized that my knees were going in and out, but they never said, uh, well, you know, we should probably check back with you at some point in the future to see if you grow out of this. You know, it was sort of like, you'll grow out of it. And I always knew that I was double jointed or whatever, but no one ever saw it as an issue. Until I went to a doctor, I developed signs of uh, Sjogren's. And Sjogren's is a, an autoimmune disorder that a lot of people with Graves disease get, which causes very dry mouth, very dry eyes. So I went to see uh, a rheumatologist and he said, wow, no doubt in my mind that you have Sjogren's syndrome. It was much worse then than it is now. And he was like, I don't even have to run a test. There is no doubt in my mind that's what you have. But let's do a full exam. I got what I was coming for. So I was like, all right, whatever. So he starts taking my hands and he starts moving my feet and my knees and my hips. And he says, your joints have no end feel. And I don't know what that means, but I go, okay, you know, and he's like, you should be in a circus. And I said, well, like, I know I'm double jointed, but he's like, no, 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 no. And he go like, look over here. And he would take my hand and he would put the palm of my hand right against my, I can't do it, but he could do it right against my arm. And I'd be like, yeah, that's a little unusual. And he'd say, yeah, like this is not supposed to happen. So he got a piece of paper and a pen and he drew a Venn diagram. And he said, you have autoimmune problems and you have hereditary problems and they intersect here and each one makes the other one worse. And he said, you have a hereditary disorder of connective tissue. And I said, well, which one? <laughs> you know? And he says, you know, it doesn't matter because there's really nothing they can do about it. He, and and he, he was like, you have been slammed. He said, you're 49 years old and nobody ever told you this? No. He was just shaking his head. I said, well, what about PT? And he says, they're going to hurt you. And I thought, well, that's really true. Every time I've gone to PT, they've hurt me. And he says, you were the only one who's going to know what you can do and what you can't do. And what you need to do is like be really scientific about it and really careful and just very carefully see what you're able to, what makes you better, what makes you worse. This is very empowering because the rest of the doctors I've gone to were basically telling me, you're blowing things way out of proportion. You know, you're, you're overreacting to things. And I'd be like, you know, I don't really think so. I mean, you know, I would continue to work even though my heart was going 140 beats a minute when the phone rang. I mean, I would, 
my history was pushing myself. My history was not giving in to myself. So, but to have somebody give me sort of that permission was, was huge. And so, of course, then I went home and I looked up hereditary disorder of connective tissue and uh, hypermobility, and I came up with EDS. So I said, aha. So then I went to a doctor in Buffalo who was recommended by people online who had EDS. He was an internist, and he was like, nobody's told you, you, you have this? And I said, no. And so I felt a little better then to go back to my own doctor and say, look, there's, there's another doctor who thinks this is what I have. I am going to go down, see Dr. Francomano, who's one of the um, best geneticists for EDS in the country, if not the world. This was 2009. So in 2009, it was only a three-month wait to go see her, not a three-year wait. So um, I got my dad and I went to see her. And I took my dad because I thought he, I thought he was probably who I got it from. I brought him with me. She took his skin and she could stretch it out. To, and she was like, went through all her three hours of testing on me. And she said, yes, you know, he has classical, you have classical, you probably have something else too from your mom. Cause she found other stuff that she thought. I had the full picture of the, of the classical plus stuff. So that's kind of where I am. But it, like at, at 49, then I went, oh, <laughs> I've really been pushing myself like too hard. To your own detriment. To my own detriment. Exactly. To meet expectations. To meet these expectations that if, I, if there's been a theme through my like high school, not college, but in high school, I'd always get told, you're not living up to your potential. I would take those standardized tests, you know, I, I would just blow them away. But I couldn't do that on a day-to-day -day basis. I could only do it when it was testing your potential, given. And I have come to understand that potential is such a loaded word because my potential is what I'm doing right now. It's not what I can do on a standardized test. And like, I have to be okay with that. And I am okay with that. You know, I got a little thing published in the New York Times back there on my service dog. So I can do little things, you know, that are, but I can't sustain it because I don't have that kind of body. So you've had to sort of reframe what you consider success, what you consider um, performing work, being productive. Exactly. Exactly. And I have to let go of what the external expectations are, because otherwise I am always going to find myself falling short. With, with EDS, I can't bend over very well. I never recovered from that sacroiliac injury. Uh, it's gotten worse into my hips. I can't walk very far. I can walk around my house, but I can't walk long distances or anything that's canted. Uh, I allowed myself to get a power chair, which was, that was another huge thing to realize that a power chair is a tool. Y you know, you use it when you need it. You don't use it when you don't need it. I applied for a service dog. Service dog is just the most wonderful thing in the world. He's over here in the bed. That's why I keep looking over there. But I've always, dogs have always been, when, when I couldn't, cope, didn't understand what was going on, I always had a dog in my lap. And they've always been like a, a huge source of comfort. And way back when I was in grad school, I had a Jack Russell Terrier who taught himself to pick stuff up for me, which is a very un-Jack Russell Terrier-like thing to do. But he would see me struggling to pick stuff up off the floor, and he'd say, oh, mom, you need help. So he'd pick it up for me. He taught the next Terrier. By the time I was diagnosed, my shoulders would dislocate they had dislocated like if I tried to lock a door behind me in the car so I didn't see any way I could train another dog because the shoulders are just not stable enough so I applied to um, canine companions for independence and they were kind enough to give me a dog they give the dogs for free which is 
unbelievable. And I have this amazing 70 pound. Um, What's his name? His name is Aslan, uh, like the lion in the Narnia Chronicles. He pulls stuff out of the washer. He pulls stuff out of the dryer. He can open a low drawer and take a uh, garbage bag out with his teeth. He, he's just, he's the best. So we will go for long rides around the neighborhood when the winter, when the weather's good, when it's not snow on the ground like today. It's just wonderful to have him and, and to have the help he gives me when you don't know what's wrong with you for 20 years, when you look around and see other people doing so much more and have no idea how they can manage to do it day after day after day. And I had no explanation. It made me turn in on myself and just not talk much, you know, to people. I had nothing to talk to them about. I wasn't working. <laughs> I was well, you know, so nobody who wasn't in my situation, there wasn't a whole lot of points of contact. He gives me a point of contact. I can be out with him and people talk to me about him. It gives us something to talk about. He marks me as somebody who maybe is going to slow you down in the grocery store. So instead of somebody bumping up against me and going, you know, like, get out of my way. It's like, oh, she's got a dog. She's going to be taking a while. I'll go over here. He just greases the skids for me. And my husband loves him too. So. Bonus. <laughs> so, so he's not just a therapy or a service dog for practical stuff. He's also has a therapeutic element. I definitely, definitely. I think all dogs do, you know, but this, he was bred to be calm. He was trained to be calm. So did your eventual diagnosis explain your childhood push and crash, the, uh, the lack of energy, the fatigue? I think that it's, I can't say this for sure, but a lot of people who have EDS also have immune issues. And my my tonsillitis was like, it wasn't just like normal tonsillitis. It was like my tonsils had been replaced by abscesses. It wasn't just like, oh, these tonsils have to come out. It's like, these are the worst tonsils I've ever seen. The anemia that went with them. Anytime somebody with EDS gets something, they get it like to the nth degree. You know, there's, there's, there's no such thing as like getting a cold. <laughs> I get a cold and I can't breathe my my vocal cords close up so i think that that started in childhood and i think you know old people might say oh they got a weak constitution or something i think i was just one of these people who had a very active mind and i wanted to do a lot of stuff but my body just didn't keep up have you heard of the illness myalgic encephalomyelitis me absolutely and when I got back from Cornell, I thought that that's what I had because I was so tired. And I thought possibly that I had that after I had this virus because uh, when I was at GE, because I would have the virus, I had the virus for three weeks and then six weeks later, I'd run a fever again. And it'd be like I had it all over again. And then six weeks after that, it would happen again. And that's why I'd go back to the doctors and I'd say, I think this is one thing that keeps repeating. And they'd say, oh, it's not one thing. It's separate viruses. And I'd say, but how am I getting these separate viruses? It's sort of like regular intervals. You know, that went on for a couple of years. And it would, I mean, I would go to sleep at my desk at lunchtime. Luckily, I was a very fast worker, so I could work fast, but I couldn't, working the hours that I was required to work was very, very difficult for me. If I had that, I had a mild case, because I know that there are people who get it as bad as I have ever been, and they never get better, you know? So, I mean, like, if I, if that's what I had, it was, it was mild, I was running fevers, so yes, there was some, some viral type thing. I also wonder whether some of the awful fatigue I've had is neurological because 
I have scoliosis both in my neck and in my lumbar spine. I have all kinds of signs of uh, what they call tethered cord, but I have no intention of getting surgery for it because I feel like there's so much that can go wrong with surgery. And I see people go down this one surgery, two surgeries, three surgeries, you know, and all of a sudden they're just always going after another surgery. And I, I just don't want to be down like that, like I'm functioning. <laughs> so I think that part of the fatigue could be neurological stress, you know, the central nervous system on the spinal cord. If that's what it is, it's long, long standing, you know. And I would say actually probably when I started first feeling tired, it would be during growth spurts. So that would make some sense too. The thyroid was so huge, getting that fixed. When I finally got the right medicine, it was like this curtain lifted. I don't have as much energy as other people, but at least I feel like myself. You know, for 10 years, it was like, this isn't me. This is, I am so tired. I can't function Yes, I know I'm not, I'm not a bundle of energy under the best of circumstances, but this is not me. I get told some people just never feel well and, you know. What was so awful is that I had the data. I would have the data that the, the thyroid grew, and I was not regarded as someone who could possibly understand it. And that was very frustrating because my body is, is, doesn't work so well but my mind works pretty well. If I'm presenting an argument, if you don't think that I'm right, tell me how, how am I not right? But I, we never got to that point. It was like. Unfortunately, the arrogance is pretty well embaked into, baked into the medical culture. Although by the sounds of it, you ran across a couple of doctors that uh, don't fit that mold and were actually really helpful. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was, and the interesting thing is I would run into them when I'd given up everything. And I mean, I even had something where I had such bad reflux that my, my vocal cords would shut and I couldn't breathe in and I couldn't breathe out. Doctors I was seeing kept giving me cough medicine and I was like, this isn't working. I don't know what's wrong. And when I saw the ear, nose and throat doctor, lovely, lovely man, who had taken care of me during my pregnancy when I'd get ear infections, he said, I know what you have. I can tell just from your voice. And I was like, like, I didn't believe him. I was like, oh yeah, right. You know, <laughs> but he was right. I had like the worst reflux because, because of EDS. My, my son was packed in there, not properly. So he busted the valve that keeps everything in your stomach. So I had terrible reflux. I had to have surgery to fix that later when he was about 10. But yes, I have run into, I have run into people who don't understand, who refuse to even consider that a patient, even somebody who I consider myself to be fairly well educated, you know, it, it should be possible to at least listen to me. But they, a number of them, absolutely refused to listen. And then I've had others who, who take one look at me and say, oh, like I, I know exactly what you have. And they're right. As a counselor, I can attest that the amount of damage physicians can do by disbelieving patients is just monumental. And they seem to be totally oblivious to it for the most part. Yeah. So your life has changed a lot and how you sort of frame your life has changed with a proper diagnosis. So I really hear mentally you're in a certain place and physically you describe where you are and you've got the help of your, your dog now. Moving forward, what are you hoping for? What are you working on? Well, I am actually writing um, a book, which I will, I don't know if I'll ever get to the end of it, but I, I, I'm plugging away, you know, kind of like four pages a week. My husband had this uh, very interesting uh, experience where he got shingles. He has a lot of complicating factors and he got complex regional pain syndrome from his shingles. Yeah, but like I knew it was happening because people with EDS get complex regional pain syndrome, even though I never had it. 
So we kept going back to the family doctor and saying, you know, like, look at this, look at this. He absolutely didn't see it, but we got him into pain management. And again, it was one of these situations where the pain management doctor goes, oh, I know what you have. Gave him nerve blocks. It took a year, but he is, he's better. He, he is, uh, he has, you know, almost regained a hundred percent of his uh, functioning and he doesn't have the pain. But that was when it really occurred to me that people who are outliers, people who uh, don't fit into the normal curve, the closer you are to the mean, the better your care is going to be. The further away you get from the mean, the scarier it gets. As a patient, what you have to do is to try to get in front of somebody for whom you're going to be in their mean. My husband was in the pain management doctor's mean, and I was in the rheumatologist's mean. It almost isn't like whether they're good or bad doctors, it has to do with what you have and who they are, what their specialty is. Because the same doctor who is wonderful under one circumstance is going to be oblivious to something else. And they're going to look at you like you're just crazy. That was kind of a tough lesson because the doctor who was looking at us like, yeah, you know, shingles hurts had always been like this really nice guy. And he was just not getting it. And it was like, you've known us for 30 years, you know, like neither of us makes a big deal out of nothing. I'm telling you what he's got here is like off the charts. And it was sort of like, I don't know what to do about it. And then when we saw the pain management doctors, it was a neurologist, it was, a, it was um, an anesthesiologist. They jumped back when they saw his foot because he had obvious signs, you know, that were clear, that meant something to them. It's not even like that the doctors are good or that the doctors are bad. It's, it's a match between what you have and what they specialize in. You don't know who to go to if you don't know what you have. <laughs> so if, if you're like me and you don't know that your hypermobile joints mean something and you don't know that your frequent injury is actually a sign of something and that the dysautonomia that somebody told you you have is actually connected to it and even the reflux. If you don't know that, you don't get in front of the right person. If you don't get in, right, in front of the right person, it's only chance that you ever get diagnosed. So Yeah, yeah absolutely true. There's too many silos in the medical system. I don't know what's going on, which is also a function of there's just so much information about the human body that needs to be understood. So many things can go wrong. Uh, but you bring the point up, and I've contended this for a while now, that the best physicians are the ones who have experienced with a chronic illness, especially one that's not understood, and where they also experience the gaslighting. You cannot pay for that education. It cannot be taught in any sort of med school that lived experience with a chronic illness or just having an illness for a long period of time, even if it's not chronic. Yes, and, and it is, you know, my particular upbringing as a, you know, rule abiding citizen who grew up two blocks from the church, you know, when an authority figure tells you that there's nothing wrong, as a younger person, that created such dissonance for me that I can't even describe to you. And that's why I would keep climbing the hills at Cornell, because it was like, well, the doctor says there's nothing wrong, you know, and it'd be like, crunch, stabbing pain, ow, but he says there's nothing wrong. Crunch, stabbing pain, ow, you know? And if I was a peasant in Peru, you know, I, I would have to climb these hills with water on my head. So like, think about that. I mean, I would, I would do these, play these mental tricks to try to convince myself that it wasn't as bad as it was. Um, so that I would just keep putting one foot in front of the other. You and internalize the gaslighting. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. When now I will say like, well, I know this is bad. That comes from a place of, you know, having sort of overcome and processed all that gaslighting and saying, yeah, you know, like I actually have a pretty good grip on reality. I had a doctor say to me recently, because my hips still stab, that, you know, sometimes it's so bad that I will scream at one end of my very L-shaped house and my husband upstairs can hear me scream. That's how bad it is. And he said to me, well, maybe it's out of proportion to the injury. And I, you know, and I just said to him, didn't I just tell you like about 10 minutes ago about how I had an infection in my jawbone because I waited because we had a pandemic to call the dentist and it was actually in my jawbone by the time I called. So like, I have a good tolerance for pain if I'm screaming, you know, loud enough that my husband can hear me. Something's wrong. Not saying you can fix it. I'm just saying I wanted in my record that I am experiencing this kind of pain. You know, they're big into the centralized pain business now. I don't know if you are familiar with how, and that's what, you know, my husband had the complex regional pain syndrome. It was still peripheral. This same doctor was like, oh, that's because he kept his leg down. I was like, no, no, it's because his nerve, his peripheral nerve was injured terribly from the nerve root all the way down to the foot, inflamed the peripheral nerve, caused peripheral pain that was then going to become centralized, but we stopped it. You know, we did, we stopped it before it got there. But there's this idea now that there's no such thing as peripheral pain. There's only centralized pain. But they're calling centralized... Sensitization. Syndrome. Yes. So basically, there's this movement now where any pain you feel is basically your body overreacting to something. Whereas it may just be your body is appropriately reacting to the injury. You know, sometimes it becomes centralized and sometimes it doesn't. As I think I said earlier, people with classical EDS tend to centralize less for whatever reason, but we don't have that widespread pain. I have very discrete pain and it tends to be short-lived, like something pops out and it hurts and it goes back in again and then it's like, okay. In my hips, I have sh like shredded cartilage and that gets caught and that, that will hurt until it goes back where it belongs. Wow, you've got quite a few challenges, not only with your physical body, but dealing with the healthcare system. So if folks wanted to connect with you on social media, how would they do that? The email that I use for my um, uh, EDS support group is cnyedsers at gmail.com. So they could send me an email there. CNY? Mm -hmm. EDSers, E-D-S-E-R-S at gmail.com. Okay, and you're on social media? Spell your name for folks, please. J-E-A-N-N-E-M-C-A-R-D-L-E at twitter.com, I guess, or? Oh, it's at Gene McArdle. Yeah. Oh, and, oh, I see, and it's called Gene Writes. Mm-hmm. But at Gene McArdle. Yeah. Well, thanks, Gene, for sharing your experience. Oh, no, you did a very good job, yeah, taking us through all of those years of frustration and gaslighting. Uh, yeah, so thank you for sharing your story, and I hope you rest hard after this, and it didn't take too much uh, yeah. out of you. Yes, no, it, it, it'll be fine. This was fun. Thanks. Okay. Well, a big thanks to Jean for sharing her multiple experiences over many, many years with the healthcare system. It's incredible how many errors can actually occur in one's experiences with the healthcare system. That's how ubiquitous they are. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com 
slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now.